This evening's presentation and presenter is well known to many of you. Professor Anang Yang is the chair of the Department of History. He's been here at the University of Washington for 15 years. His specialty is in South Asian history, specifically relating to colonial India. In recent years, he's taken that much broader and global and comparative history and has focused significantly on issues of economic diaspora and labor around the Indian and Pacific Oceans, the Caribbean, and Southeast Asia. His work in the Jackson School, his work as chair of the Department of History, and as a colleague and a partner to the Alumni Association is longstanding. Please join me in welcoming Professor Anand Yang to start our series with his lecture on Gandhi. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. A lot of history in this room, I can see. Thank you all for coming. And thank you, Paul, for that very gracious introduction. I feel that um, talking about Gandhi, one, one has a certain amount of latitude, because Gandhi, as a young man, as, we, as you'll be hearing shortly, was a terribly shy person and a terrible orator and also an awful lawyer because he always told his clients if they were guilty to plead them. And so he didn't get a lot of business. And as you'll hear, he moved on from that phase of his life. So Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, better known as Mahatma Gandhi, the Mahatma meaning, um, it's an honorific that means great soul, has always been a presence in my life. In my boyhood years in New Delhi in the late 50s and early 60s, he loomed especially large on October 2nd, at least once a year because that was his birthday, a special celebration for our school children because it was a day off. It was known as Gandhi Jayanti, meaning Gandhi anniversary, which in 2007 was, was made by the United Nations into International Nonviolence Day. October 2nd was, and still is, the occasion for patriotic speeches and public assemblies to commemorate Gandhi as the father of the nation. However, even in my childhood years, removed only a decade or so from his assassination in 1948, he was the stuff of our history, venerated beyond compare, but museumified, that is, safely lodged behind glass in the museum of our national pride and, and past, a relic of an earlier age. Foreign dignitaries invariably stopped by his cremation grounds, known as Raj Ghat, to pay their respects, as did my family's foreign guests, as this photo from the early 60s portrays. And I'm sure you can figure out that I'm not the older man in that picture. <laughs> the inscription says, Hey Ram, which is the Hindi down at the bottom of this um, memorial. And it is said to have been the phrase Gandhi uttered as he was falling to the ground. Whether or not he actually said it has been, quite, has been disputed quite a bit. And Gandhi himself, in the last few months leading up to his assassination, because there were other attempts on his life, 
uh, was very philosophical about what could happen to him any day. And he is said to have said that were he to die, fell by an assassin's bullet, that he planned on saying, Hey Ram, which means, oh God, Ram is the, is the name of one of the most popular gods of Hinduism. But he also wanted to say, Hey Rahim, which is, of course, another name for Allah. So interesting that it just says, Hey Ram. Much more pertinent to our everyday lives was Jawaharlal Nehru, our prime minister and Gandhi's close lieutenant and friend. Impeccably bedecked in Gandhian garb, he stood center stage when India had its tryst with destiny, to use his memorable phrase, for that midnight hour leading up to August 15, 1947, when India became independent. Until Nehru's death in 1964, it was his vision of a modern and industrialized nation that steered the country into its post-colonial future, not Gandhi's ideals. In fact, on that momentous August 15, 1947, Gandhi was not among the revelers. He was far away in Calcutta, attempting to quell Hindu-Muslim communal violence in Bengal by engaging in a 24-hour fast, prayer, and spinning yarn. Six months later, the apostle of nonviolence and peace was felled by an assassin's bullet, killed by a man who hated Gandhi for his perceived Muslim sympathies and his so-called superstitions. The light has gone out, lamented Nehru in his moving eulogy, adding that Gandhi was, quote, no ordinary light. The light that has illumined this country for these many years will illumine this country for many more years. And a thousand, thousand years later, that light will be seen in this country, and the world will see it, and it will give solace to innumerable hearts. To many who came under his spell, he was a saint or another Christ, a characterization featured in Richard Attenborough's Oscar-winning 1982 film, Gandhi, which I suspect many of you have seen. But in the decades after Gandhi's violent demise, his halo has dimmed considerably, especially in his own country. Today, Hindu right-wingers condemn him as an appeaser of Muslims and as the culprit behind India's partition and the creation of Pakistan. Others lambast him for playing up Hindu rhetoric and symbols during the nationalist movement. Many find his personal habits bizarre, his austere regimen, his idiosyncratic diet, his refusal to take medicine when sick, his sexual anxieties. Still others criticize him for, his, for the lack of support for class and gender-based movements, and particularly his failure to reject the caste system outright, even though he devoted chunks of his life on alleviating the mistreatment of that large minority of people classified as untouchables or harijans, which is a term he liked to use, which means children of God, or dalits, meaning crushed or marginalized to use their own preferred self-designation. 
B.R. Ambedkar featured there, there in this slide, the great Dalit leader and contemporary of Gandhi's authored a blistering attack on the caste system in his speech later published as The Annihilation of Caste. He was one of Gandhi's harshest critics and found his views extremely problematic and patronizing. And as India has emerged as a regional and nuclear power and is marching ahead to become in the 21st century a global economic, political, and military powerhouse, many of his countrymen and women dismiss Gandhi because of his anti-industrialization ideas and his embrace of pacifism. Gandhi's life spanned an era when the world became increasingly more interconnected and global, and mass media and photography came of age. He was born in 1869, the year that the Suez Canal shortened Europe's route to the Indo-Pacific region by 6,000 kilometers. By then, telegraph lines had forged transoceanic connections. When he died 78 years later in 1948, he had lived through the most murderous decades in human history, beginning with the Boer War at the outset of the 20th century, followed by two devastating world wars and the tragic partition of 1947, when independence for India and Pakistan came at a horrific price, the slaughter of several hundred thousand people, maybe a million people in the bloodbath that ensued between Hindus and Muslims. Over the course of his almost 50 year long career in the public eye, Gandhi repeatedly invented and reinvented himself to become, to become the Mahatma that his admirers revered and his detractors abhorred and one of the most recognized individuals in the world, as is depicted in these rather odd Time magazine covers. Not very good uh, portraits of the Mahatma, uh, but one of the covers there is of when, Mahat when Mahatma Gandhi was the man of the year for 1930. Gandhi emerged as a Mahatma through the public campaigns he headed which increasingly riveted the world's attention and by deploying his body and words to articulate his agenda. He embraced photography and mass media and spoke and wrote extensively. His image of simplicity and frailty became iconic as did the clothing he chose to drape or not his body. He was not a great orator, as I've already mentioned, but many of the words he conveyed in his speeches, interviews, and in print have lived on as pithy statements, sound bites, really, that are endlessly cited and repeated. Indeed, Gandhi was a master semiotician. As with so much else in his life, Gandhi experimented with his clothes as well in order to make a public statement. When he went to England to study law in September 1888, he dressed the part. As he later put it, he became more English than, than Englishman 
And you can see this kind of in this picture from later on, the, the way he dressed up. He also dressed that way, uh, which is depicted here when he first showed up in South Africa in 1893. Slowly he began to switch his attire designed to emphasize a person of lowly origin. And so you begin to see this in the second photograph there from 1915. In 1913, initially he donned a lungi, kind of a garment or sarong that is worn round the waist, along with uh, a kurta, a loose sort of collarless shirt that he wore on top and shaved his head. So he has a shaved head under that turban, which he did when, which he did first in sympathy with the shooting of Indian miners in South Africa. He dressed wrongly, so to speak, deliberately, wearing clothes that he knew were socially unacceptable and provocatively as a strategy for exposing injustice and embarrassing others. That is, his clothes, as we'll see with so much of his life, were intended to be a provocation. And the last picture that you have there from 1931 is after he arrives in India, initially he tries on one kind of garb, but then ends up with just a loincloth around him with, um, with several parts of his body exposed even in that cold weather where you see everybody else in coats and over jackets and raincoats, uh, but Gandhi has his loincloth under the sheets of cloth that he has on top. So on his return to India in 1915, he dressed like a peasant from Western India, which is where he was from. An unusual choice because he was not of that uh, background. And also as an adult, he had not lived in that area for a long time. Finally, as I said, he opted for a loincloth made of, and this is important, made of a material called khadi, which is homespun, home-woven cloth. And as we will see, that too conveyed a certain kind of message. He used that fabric, which he himself spun and encouraged his followers to spin as well, as a way to epitomize India's dire poverty and the urgency of improving people's economic conditions through self-sufficiency and the wholesale rejection of Western values. Winston Churchill, and Winston Churchill's reference is to that last photo on your, on your right from 1931. Winston Churchill found Gandhi's sartorial style to use his invective alarming and nauseating. He thought of Gandhi as a seditious middle temple lawyer posing as a half-naked fakir, or holy man, that is, who had the audacity to wage civil disobedience and, quote, to use Churchill's words, parley on equal terms with the representative of the Queen Emperor. Gandhi aroused considerable controversy because he showed up in London in 1931 for the Round Table Conference, dressed the way you see in the photograph there, and showed up at Buckingham Palace, similarly attired for his visit with King George V, who hesitated about inviting Gandhi to the palace. As the king put it, he didn't want that little man with no proper clothes and bare knees 
they'll come to the palace. When reporters asked Gandhi after his Buckingham Palace visit whether he thought his loincloth proper attire for the palace, Gandhi quipped, quote, the king was wearing enough for both of us. <laughs> so one of the things that's, which will not necessarily come across in this lecture, but is an integral part of the man Gandhi is his terrific sense of humor. And I could very easily have just given a lecture focusing on Gandhi and Charlie Chaplin, who he meets in 1931. I'm not sure who made the other one laugh more, but they had a very jolly good meeting, uh, the two of them. Much more receptive were the ordinary men and women of England, uh, as you can see in this photograph here, and in this really wonderful photograph of Lancashire women mill workers joyously greeting Gandhi as one of their own. And I think there was always this sense that wherever Gandhi went to visit people in England, the servants always wanted to come rush, rush out and have a meeting with him. And so these women in this remarkable photograph have such joy written on their faces in the company of Gandhi, the leader whose campaign against machine-made goods from England were, were uh, really undermining their livelihood and their occupations. Gandhi also wore what he did because he rightly recognized that clothes were a marker of community identity, not only distinguishing between Europeans and Indians, but also among his own countrymen and women of different castes, religions, and regions. So he invented the Gandhi cap, which you saw Nehru wearing earlier, and then rid himself of many items of clothing so that he could be dressed to, in a bare minimum to convey asceticism and social neutrality and not have caste, religious, or regional affiliation. And he believed that Indians need to make their own clothes so that they weren't dependent on Britain. And uh, one of the developments in the 19th century is India, which has this remarkable textile industry and had been a, a dominant player in, in textile production and trade, loses out to machine-made goods uh, in the wake of England's industrial revolution. So he urged his followers to spend a few hours every day spinning and making cloth that they, that they would then wear. So clothes were never just about their visual effect. He spun and wore khadi to commemorate the importance of hand spinning and weaving and of reviving Indian crafts destroyed by the rise of the Industrial Revolution. So for Gandhi, clothes were about identity, but also resistance. They conveyed a moral, political, and economic message they were meant to spurn Western civilization and material possessions and emphasize pride in Indian civilization. Thus, his preoccupation with the spinning wheel. Um, in fact, when Western reporters met him, uh, he would often make them spin, use his uh, uh, chakra, his wheel, to spin clothes. So in addition, the spinning wheel and the encouragement of people to make their own clothes 
was also designed to involve large numbers of ordinary men and especially women in the nationalist project. Gandhi also deployed his words effectively and he was a prolific writer. He woke at dawn every day and wrote until noon or so. I think a model that all of us who are in the writing business uh, would love to emulate. And he wrote speeches, editorials, started newspapers, and wrote many of the columns in the newspapers, and did a vast amount of sort of other kinds of writings. His writings include, and this is what you see depicted in the slide, a fascinating, seemingly tell-all autobiography entitled, can you imagine politicians having this as the headline of their autobiography? The story of my experiments with truth, where you tell about all your foibles, or you seem to be telling about everything that is bad as well as good about you, uh, Although, keep in mind, this is an autobiography initially, written, initially started when he was in prison in 1922 and completed over the next three to four years uh, because it was then published in his newspaper in the mid-1920s and finally issued as a two-volume book in, in the late 1920s. So there's a certain amount of self-fashioning that, of course, takes place in this autobiography, but it's, it's a remarkably candid and frank account of, of many of the things that I think made Gandhi tick. Much of his vast corpus of writings, and there really are acres and acres of writings, have been preserved in his collected works, and you see a handful of them in the bottom part of the slide, and if you can see the numbers, it goes from 01 to 82. So missing are the remaining 18, because there are 100 volumes of Mahatma Gandhi's collected works. And many scholars rely on these collected works to write about Gandhi. But we're constantly discovering a lot of other writings that are not captured by these collected works. We, we also learn a lot about Gandhi from the 400 plus biographies written about him, three of which I included on your reading list and which are shown at the top of that slide. In the rest of my talk, I will highlight Gandhi as one of the transformative leaders of the 20th century, a man whose actions and ideas about confronting tyranny and oppression continue to offer productive ways to speak truth to power. I will begin with a comparative assessment of him in relation to some of his uh, fellow leaders of his period, and then sketch his life to highlight the origins of his major ideas and practices, and then follow up with a discussion of his praxis by examining the political campaigns he headed in India in the aftermath of World War I. In closing, I will briefly touch on the ways in which Gandhian ideas and practices have fired up the imagination and actions of protesters and dissenters the world over. Much of what Gandhi did and said in his public life as, is as vividly embodied in his persona and clothes as, excuse me, 
Much of what Gandhi did and said in his public life, as is vividly embodied in his persona and clothes, were intended as provocations, as in incitements and arguments against rulers and their ruling ideologies. And the mass movements he mobilized from among elite and subaltern groups, rich and poor, old and young, male and female, upper and lower castes, and different religious backgrounds were unprecedented, certainly unprecedented in Indian history. Gandhi stands out as one of the towering figures of the 20th century who re re remade our world for good or bad. Note his place in this pantheon that includes Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, and Mao, includes a number of other people, and I'm sure we recognize all of them, except maybe the person on the right-hand bottom corner, and that, of course, is the father of the A-bomb, um, the scientist, the phys theoretical physicist, Robert Oppenheimer. But interestingly, notice who is not here, since many of you have seen the movie about him, Winston Churchill, who is very much in the news these days. Uh, this is not a pantheon created uh, in India. I think had, uh, had Indian authors been behind it, Churchill would not be in this circle, but would be in one of the circles of hell as far as Indians are concerned. Gandhi differs markedly from all these political leaders featured here because he never commanded state power. He briefly held an official leadership role in the Indian National Congress, the principal organization of the Indian nationalist movement, but mostly he chose not to seek or hold office. His engagement with power was always from the other side of the barrel of a gun, a position he assumed in taking on the British Empire on three continents, in Europe, in Asia, and in Africa, which doesn't mean that he didn't wield outsized influence and power, informal power, within the nationalist movement. He also carved out a very different path from the other major 20th century political leaders in that he did not advocate and employ violence to achieve his ends. On the contrary, he was always committed to nonviolence. However, Gandhi always insisted that if someone chose nonviolence because they were a coward, it was better to be violent than nonviolent. Gandhi was exposed to ideas of nonviolence early on in his life. This is such an early picture. Uh, that it's not, a, it's somewhat of a fuzzy photograph, but that's the best I could do. He was born in Western India in 1869, as I've already mentioned, in a small princely state. If you know your Indian states, he was born in the state of Gujarat, one of the areas from where many members of the Indian diaspora in the United States and elsewhere in the world hail from. His family was middle caste and middle class. Some say he was of elite backgrounds. He was of a trading and merchant caste, so not of either of the two higher castes 
of either Brahmins or priests or warriors, but he was of a trading caste of a region where traders and merchants have very high status. Furthermore, his father was an advisor and minister to an Indian, to a small Indian princely state. So he grew up quite familiar with his fellow countrymen wielding positions of power and influence. His mother, who was really his father's fourth wife, belonged to a Hindu sect that advocated unity of different faiths and simplicity of living. His area was also home to two other religions, Jainism, which, is, which has many similarities to Hinduism, but is also somewhat different, and Islam. So early on, because Jainism was also present in his mother and his family's life, he absorbed Jain ideas, particularly its notion of what is called ahimsa, a term I'll come back to later on, which basically means non-injury, non-violence. So an outlook of non-injury, non-violence towards all other beings, not just other human beings, but all animal and plant life, uh, as well as other forms of beings. So his area was home to both Jains and Muslims. Uh, his mother was known to engage in regular fasts and follow a very austere lifestyle, practice, practices of self-suffering that Gandhi would later on make his own and make into a vital part of his strategy for political struggle. So Gandhian methods are frequently employed by large numbers of groups, but not the Gandhian idea of either austerity or asceticism, or the idea that one of the ways you confront and you awaken the conscience and the morality of your, of your opponent, although he wouldn't call them uh, opponent, is to impose suffering on yourself, not, on, not inflicted on your enemy, but on yourself. In September 1888, when he, was almost, when he was almost 19, he sailed for England to pursue studies to qualify as a lawyer. By then, he was already married. He married as a 13-year-old to a 14-year-old, and by the time he left in 1888, he already had one son. He would later on have three more sons. And so although we think of Gandhi as the father of the nation, I think he was so preoccupied with that part of his paternal duties, he was far less effective as a father of four sons. And so it's kind of a very interesting kind of personal biography. Also, uh, it's probably very difficult being the son of a father who believes in austerity and asceticism and sort of uh, non-possessions as a way to go through life. But in England, he initially attempted to fit in. He had clothes made in Bond Street. He briefly took lessons in elocution and French and even ballroom dancing and violin. For a while, he was, I think as he himself would admit, a dandy or dandyish. He invested in a top hat and tails, bright ties. And I think you can see in this photograph, 
He often wore shirts with a, what was known as a Gladstone collar, which is the collar he has on in that photograph, and wore patent leather shoes with spats. But he didn't turn his back, as he points out in his autobiography, to the vows he made to his mother, not to touch wine, women, and meat, although by then he had already experimented with meat in India, and he briefly flirted with a woman in England, but quickly came to his senses, or so he tells us, um, and told the woman that he was actually married. In England, he became a vegetarian. He read and was influenced by Henry Salt's book, A Plea for Vegetarianism, which spoke of kindness to animals. And sometimes biographers of Gandhi make a big thing of this, but it's very easy to see that what Salt's ideas about vegetarian uh, based on kindness to animals really does is reinforce Hindu and Jain notions that Gandhi had already absorbed as a young boy growing up in India. In England, he also learned Victorian ideas about self-help and poured over the Bhagavad Gita, or the Song of God, in Sanskrit and in an English translation by Sir Edwin Arnold, which existed at the time Gandhi lived in England. The Bhagavad Gita, and we're, I'm, I'm not going to go into this, is, uh, what, what is it, two or three chapters from this massive Indian epic known as the Mahabharat, which is made up of several volumes, and all this Bhagavad Gita is chapters, uh, what, 23 to 40 of this massive text. In England, his experiments in dietetics stayed with him throughout his life and were always linked to his ideas of truth and morality. In 1891, he'll return to India, and over the next two years, he unsuccessfully attempted to develop a legal career. Though England educated and returned, he discovered that just by stepping, just by returning to Indian soil, he was back to being a mere colonial subject, a slight and a racism that he saw, that he felt very personally, because an Englishman that he had been friends with in London treated him as um, uh, a native subject um, in India. Furthermore, he was not a good public speaker and a terrible lawyer. He just couldn't speak up in court, so he was an abysmal failure and just couldn't cut it. And um, when an invitation came from a fellow Gujarati family about representing it in South Africa, he gladly accepted their invitation and packed his bags and set sail for Africa in April 1893. For the next 21 years, between 1893 and 1914, he remained in South Africa, a place, um, a place that was home to several thousand Indians. Traders and merchants, many of them, like Gandhi, many, many of whom were Muslims, so unlike Gandhi, some professionals, somewhat like Gandhi, but increasingly a growing number of laborers, pejoratively termed coolies, many of them indentured or formally indentured workers. 
<coughs> excuse me, 24-year-old Gandhi, newly arrived, quickly found himself the target of racial abuse and violence from being tossed out of the first-class compartment of a train, even though he had a ticket to being beaten by a stagecoach driver who wanted to make room for a European passenger inside the coach, so wanted Gandhi, even though he had a ticket, to sit on uh, the, wanted to sit on the sideboard of the carriage. In South Africa, he experienced firsthand over and over again racism, prejudice, and injustice against Indians. Very quickly, Gandhi blossomed into a public persona, and some of the things he starts doing is outlined in that timeline there. He blossomed into a public persona, capitalizing on the skills he had recently acquired, his mastery of English and his knowledge of legal processes and codes. Increasingly, he spoke out against unfair ordinances and regulations aimed at Indians from registrations and passes that were compulsory for all Indians to taxes formerly indentured laborers had to pay in order to remain in the country. When legal recourse failed, he turned to what in 1907 he initially termed passive resistance. So, so much of what Gandhi developed, so many of the doctrines, so many of the ideas, comes from practice and comes from practices where he's responding to different kinds of situations. But what Gandhi also learns from, and particularly in these initial years of the 20th century, is by his readings and correspondence, particularly with Leo Tolstoy. He had read Tolstoy's The Kingdom of God is Within You while he was in London, but he found its message of Christian pacifism and the infinite possibilities of universal love much more resonant in South Africa and began to correspond with that great Russian novelist in October 1909, a few months before Tolstoy's death in November 1910. He also liked Tolstoy's opposition to industrialism and militarism. In addition, in 1904, he was captivated by John Ruskin's book entitled Unto This Last, uh, Until This Last, published in 1962. The book, Gandhi claimed, transformed his life. But as with everything he read and experienced, he always added his own idiosyncratic interpretation uh, to whatever he was doing or reading. From Ruskin, he took to heart the message, quote, the good of the individual is contained in the good of all, and that a lawyer's work had the same value as a barber's, and that the life of the tiller of a soil and the craftsman were the life worth living. A very unusual way of thinking for somebody who is a caste Hindu, because one of the ways in which the caste system ideally divides up people is by the kind of work they do. And people who toil with their hands usually are lower caste. And people who toil with their hands and come into contact with uh, 
Cuban refuse of one sort or another are considered un untouchables or Dalits. So Ruskin's ideas and the way Gandhi uh, improvises on it is, is actually quite radical. In South Africa, he also returned to an essay, Henry David Thoreau's 1840s essay on civil disobedience that he had first read in England, probably in part uh, with Henry Salt, who was the great interpreter of Thoreau in England in the late 19th century. And now in South Africa, it spoke to him about the importance of any honest man resisting unjust laws, about the absolute imperative of every honest human being to confront injustice with civil disobedience. Equally critical, and this is what makes Gandhi such an interesting individual, was the meetings he had in 1909 when he went to England, where, as he put it, he met with every known Indian anarchist in London because he wanted to get a sense of what were these people who were scheming and plotting to throw the British out of India through acts of violence. What were they thinking? And Gandhi came away uh, impressed with their willingness to die for the cause of India's freedom, but did not condone their readiness to kill. So on the ship ride back from England to South Africa in 1909, so he's heading back to Cape Town, in 10 days, he wrote a small book of 30,000 words in his native Gujarati entitled Hind Swaraj, which he himself translated as Indian Home Rule. The prefix swa in many of the words you'll see is a Sanskrit Hindi sort of prefix meaning self, so self-rule. Uh, so he wrote feverishly over the course of 10 days. And uh, as we know from Gandhi's own telling, when his right hand gave out, he switched to his left hand so he could finish this text of 30,000 words. And this work comes as close as anything to present his philosophy systematically, which was always a work in progress and always evolving, even though his adherence to nonviolence remained constant in everything he wrote. I, I don't have the time to really elaborate on this text at, uh, at all, other than to say that it's set up as an imaginary dialogue between an editor who's Gandhi and a reader who is not Gandhi, and the banter they have uh, leads Gandhi over the course of this text to talk about, uh, to really uh, rail against modern civilization. That modern civilization and what it embodied through its parliaments and machineries and railways and doctors and English educated elites, uh, all were focused on the body and did not tend to the soul of the human being. That in the course of the text, what he praises is what are real or genuine civilization, for, which for him meant traditional India, India, village India, rather than, um, rather than modern Western civilization. A civilization uh, of India where manual labor, self-restraint, pursuit of virtue and sacrifice 
instead of pleasure and profit uh, were central to the way human beings interacted and behaved with one another. Gandhi's indictment, we often forget, is not only of, uh, of, um, of industrial civilization, but it's also about Western capitalism and what it did to uh, human interactions. And so what he hoped for uh, was this ideal of a trusteeship where people were responsible uh, to one another and took care of one another. And he hoped to effect uh, this change through nonviolence. Whoops. What is also important about the book is the book really, as with so many of Gandhi's ideas, delegitimate the overwhelming coercive power that the colonial state enjoyed and could justifiably wield as a retaliatory force in the face of violence. Nonviolence for him was always a way to win back moral authority. And what is brilliant about Gandhi is he recognizes that colonial rule is about political, economic, military domination, but it was also about psychological, cultural, and psychic capture of uh, the Indian soul and the Indian population. And so a lot of what he does is aimed at delegitimizing or creating a disconnect in, in that kind of relationship and seeing what he was doing that was often seen as feminine, as manly and courage in the face of what Western rule or British rule was doing in India. So standing up to the violence of the authorities was not a sign of cowardice for nonviolence expressed, uh, not the impotence of men, but the potency of women. Furthermore, nonviolence was never just about abjuring violence. It was about challenging, and I think this is what many protesters get, today get right, even provoking violence, and but taking its blows in order to gain the moral high ground over your oppressors and your tyrants. During his South African stint, Gandhi also embarked on personal experiments. He established uh, an ashram, a spiritual community. This is a later one in 1910. And this brought together large numbers of people of all kinds of backgrounds. And I don't know how clearly you can see this um, in the photograph there, but this is really a people from, from uh, not only the Indian community, but several people from the European community as well. Although what's striking here is the absence of Africans. And so there's this, this glaring omission in Gandhi's vision. He never, he never militated for the rights of the people who were the most oppressed in South Africa, Africans. He just has this blind spot, just as he, even though he spent all his time championing the cause of Dalits, he never said, let's just do away with the entire caste system. Over the, so I'm just gonna, so many of his ideas that he developed in South Africa that he will apply in India. 
can be summed up in some of his key concepts, the idea of nonviolence or an ahimsa that, that he grew up with, that were reaffirmed by um, ide ideas he picked up in England and South Africa, the idea that he took from Tolstoy and Thoreau, civil disobedience and passive resistance, that he transformed into satyagraha, meaning truth force or soul, soul force, so a force born, born of truth and love or nonviolence. So it has much more of an activist sense to it, and the path of satyagraha, at least for him, involved a commitment to certain kinds of virtues and discipline. And what he sought to do was bring about self-rule, which was not only for the entire collectivity and the nation, but also was about creating a certain kind of uh, autonomy for the individual and the community. When he returned to India, he led three major political campaigns. Outlined here is non-cooperation, civil disobedience, and quit India. Each of these campaigns did not last beyond a few years or even a few months, even though they were hugely successful. So non-cooperation, which he launched between 1920 and 1922, as you can see in uh, the list of what Gandhi wanted his followers to do, was, was something that everyone could participate in because all it required was for you to sever your ties to the colonial state, to boycott everything you did that uh, was to the benefit of the state, withdrawing, boycotting, resigning, giving up, burning clothes. Not everyone agreed with this kind of idea. And in 1922, when a police station is attacked and 23 policemen were burnt alive in it, even though this is a hugely successful movement, it's a movement that for the first time in Indian history has mobilized people from every walk of life. And in this particular movement, large numbers of Muslims as well. He abruptly calls the movement to an end. Not till 1930 does he launch his second movement known as civil disobedience. And you can see how adept he is in trying to win over the world's attention and sympathy. And what he does in this is uh, march 241 miles, as seen in the map on your right, from his ashram to a little coastal town in Gujarat, where 240 some miles later, in the company of 78 or 79 men and women that he had handpicked, the, the crowds growing larger and larger as he marched uh, across Western India, he made a pinch of salt and his followers did the same, and they were all arrested because salt was an item that was taxed and you were not allowed to make it yourself. Uh, I had newsreel, but it didn't work, so I'm just gonna show you these pictures very quickly. And the important point here is, once again, Gandhi develops a huge mass movement, even larger and bigger than the previous one, and particularly successful in drawing, as he also did in non-cooperation, 
large numbers of women to the cause, as you can see in the kind of beating that takes place of women demonstrators. And all he does is make a pinch of salt. No wonder Time magazine, Life magazine, every newspaper from all over the world followed this solitary individual, followed by large numbers of people going to make, uh, having one defiant act of making a pinch of salt. In 1942, he led the last of his movements uh, entitled Quit India under the slogan of Do or Die. And what he did in the midst of World War II, with Japan having just taken over Burma and on the verge of invading India, is asked the British to leave India and was not willing to wait for the British who said that after, after the war, they were willing to grant India independence. He wanted the British to leave immediately. And at once, he's locked up in jail. But 1942 was a massive popular movement where huge swaths of India uh, were lost to the British because local protesters took over post offices, government buildings, uh, all kinds of offices. And the British basically lost control of India for brief moments in many parts of the country. And it was clear that the handwriting was on the wall. And it was just a matter of time uh, before Britain had to grant India its independence. And so the tryst with destiny came in 1947. The kinds of ideas and practices Gandhi developed over the course of his 50-year-long career has inspired and fired up imaginations the world over. This is not the place to uh, highlight those genealogical affiliations, and one could do it to any number of protest movements, perhaps none better than uh, the civil rights movement in the United States. And I think many of you are familiar with the long ties or the long interest in Gandhi dating back to people like W.E.B. Du Bois and uh, the great 20th century religious thinker and philosopher Thurman and of course Bayard Rustin and all these people who uh, taught Martin Luther King or served as his advisors later on, the kind of ways in which they conveyed Gandhi's ideas to the person who exemplifies the kind of Gandhian influence in the United States, depicted here in this 1959 photograph of Reverend Martin Luther King uh, going to India. King, of course, never met uh, Gandhi, but many, but many of the people before him did. So his teacher, uh, Professor Thurman, uh, went out to India in the 1930s, in 1935, and met with Gandhi. And Baird Rustin went out just after Gandhi's assassination to spend seven weeks studying Gandhian philosophy while he was in. Uh, and of course, Gandhi's image and ideas, uh, his words have been chanted by protesters all over the all over the world, his image has shown up. And let me end, um, excuse me, uh, many of his ideas have been channeled through this brilliant work 
by Jean Sharp, a three-volume history of nonviolence, which lays out the 198 methods that any protester should use in nonviolence protest. It's, I don't expect any of you to be able to see any of this, but it is a manual, a how-to-do manual of how to engage in peaceful protest. And in many parts of the world, this book is banned, for example, in China. We know at the end of that in 1939 and 40, and I'll leave you with this parting thought, Gandhi wrote two letters to Hitler. In 1939, he wrote what some people call a rather unctuous kind of letter, because it says, dear friend to uh, the Fuhrer, and it takes this very polite kind of tone, and he followed this up in 1940 with a much longer letter where he's begging your forgiveness for intruding on you, but encouraging Hitler to learn from the nonviolent methods that Gandhi was employing against another ruthless regime, the British. Needless to say, Hitler never responded, uh, nor do we know whether or not he ever saw it. But I want to leave you with this question which also segues into the next lecture, that can Gandhian methods of civil disobedience and ideas of civil disobedience work against all tyrannical and oppressive regimes? Gandhi didn't even get an answer to his two missives. So tune in next week to Professor Lori Marhoffer's lecture, because she will be talking about Nazi Germany. Thank you for your indulgence, and thank you for listening. <laughs>